morning, everybody. Uh, of all the religions that have come and gone since human beings started recording history, uh, keeping a record of, of historical events, Christianity has to have earned the title least likely to succeed in light of its unpromising, obscure, and disadvantageous beginnings. I mean, its founder was born to a low-income teenage couple in a, in a tiny backwoods province under the thumb of the powerful Roman Empire. His followers were anything but noteworthy. Five of them uh, are, are not five. Why did I come up with five of them? I don't know. But, but not many of them were fishermen, or not many of them were, were <laughs> had any ed education to speak of. They were fishermen. That's what I've been trying to say. Um, several of them were fishermen. And, and even though Jesus handpicked them, they weren't known f for their leadership ability or, or their keen in intellect or, or their talents and abilities that, that may have set them apart from from anyone else living at that time and place. And, and though Jesus would eventually become locally famous uh, for his teachings and, and the miracles that he performed, virtually no one outside of that tiny province ever even heard of him while he walked this earth. And his 12 closest followers, despite the fact that Jesus had personally mentored them, poured himself into them, after three years, they were, they were arguably every bit as selfish, every bit as worldly-minded, contentious, weak-faced, cowardly, and ignorant than they were three years earlier, despite their being taught by the greatest teacher ever to have walked this earth. Jesus' own disciples seemed to prove the point that as, as important as great Bible teaching is and, and great coaching and, and following a great leader, as important as those things are, we need something more. Uh, we, we need something else. Jesus kept telling his disciples before his death and resurrection that he was going to one day leave, leave them. They didn't know at the time what he was talking about. He frequently talked in parables and often used figurative language, and, and they regularly struggled to figure out whether he was speaking literally or whether he was speaking figuratively, so they didn't really grasp the reality that he was literally going to leave them one day. But he also told them that after he was gone, he was going to send them a gift. He mentioned this many times throughout the three years that he was uh, with them, but especially so the night that he was arrested. During his final meal with his disciples, he would be crucified the very next morning. He said this according to John's account of, of Jesus' life and teachings. This is what John records him saying. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do as I say, obey my instructions, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So two things the Spirit of truth or the Holy Spirit will do. One, help you, and two, he will be with you forever. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him 
nor knows him. The world, world knows nothing of the Holy Spirit because, because the world is spiritually blind, as all of us once were spiritually blind. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. See, uh, Jesus says, until now, the Spirit has been with you, Jesus says, because the Holy Spirit is my very own Spirit, and my Spirit has been with you because I have been with you. But, he says, my Spirit will be in you. He will not, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Well, how will they see him if he's leaving them going away? Because his very own spirit is going to be in them. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, I imagine the disciples are not exactly grasping what Jesus is saying at this point. They often struggle to understand what Jesus is talking about. And I imagine that this was one of those times. In fact, I imagine the, the disciples at this point are kind of like this. <laughs> but moments later, Jesus will tell them, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is, is an advocate on our behalf and a helper who will be with us forever and he will teach us and remind us of the things that he's taught us. Now throughout their mealtime, the Last Supper, Jesus continues to teach them, explaining that he has to go away, but he says, don't worry, don't be afraid, I am sending you a gift, an advocate, a helper, the gift of my Holy Spirit. They finish up their meal, and then they head over to the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, about a 20-minute walk, and they're on their way, and they walk through a vineyard, and Jesus continues to teach them, and he points to the, vineyard, the vines growing in the vineyard, and he says, listen up guys see it's like this see these vines think of it this way i am the vine you are the branches just like branches need to stay connected to the vine if they're going to bear fruit so you need to stay connected to me well how are we supposed to stay connected to you if you're going away through the holy spirit i am sending you as a gift and then he goes into detail about that as they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which, as you know, is where Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested that night. So as they get closer to the garden, where he knows he's about to become the object of intent, intense, violent hatred from the world, he tells them that they too will be hated. That's part of his teaching as they're walking in, as he knows he's, what he's about to face. He says, you too will be hated. This is what he says. He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So, I mean, come on. Nobody would bet on this movement at this point. The leader predicts his own execution... His clueless disciples are going to abandon him. They're going to run away and hide. The whole world is going to hate them. <laughs> so how is this movement ever going to get any traction? 
Nobody would have given this movement a chance. Jesus reminded them again that he's going away, and then he says this, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I go away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So it's, it's kind of almost like as long as Jesus remains alive in the flesh, his spirit must re remain inside of him, right? I mean, if your spirit were to leave you, your physical body would die, would be, and you would, your body would just become a clump of cells. But if Jesus leaves this three-dimensional world and his three-dimensional physical body, if he sets aside the limitations of his flesh and blood, he can make his spirit available to all of us, to dwell within each one of us. Going on, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So among the other things that we've already mentioned, the Holy Spirit proves the world to be wrong about its ideas, about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. There's a whole message in that one verse, or perhaps even a whole series, which actually Jesus seems to acknowledge in what he says next. He says, I have much more to say to you more than you can bear now, but he, the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So here's yet another thing this Holy Spirit does. He guides us into truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The Holy Spirit even gives us insight into what lies ahead, what, what, awaits for, what, what awaits us in eternity, and sometimes even what awaits us in this life. They arrive at the garden. Jesus asks them to, to wait with him, to stay alert and to pray. He then goes a stone's throw away and begins to pray himself, but his prayer is now suddenly full of agony as he finally begins to allow his mind to reflect on the enormous suffering that awaits him. What do the disciples do? After Jesus' teaching, after his instruction and encouragement, sharing his heart with them, opening up to them on a, on a level he previously had not. What do the disciples do? Take a nap. They, they fall asleep. And then in short order, one of his disciples betray him, Jesus is arrested, the disciples abandon him, fearing for their lives. A few hours later, one of, them, one of them denies he even knows him. You know the story. Not at all the picture of a group of people who are even remotely qualified to start any kind of movement. Nobody would have bet this movement would become the largest, greatest movement in human history. When Jesus was crucified, they were completely upended. Even though Jesus multiple times told them this was going to happen, it, it just didn't register with them so that when it happened, they were despondent, they were hopeless, uh, they were cowering behind locked doors. None of them was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't he tell us that he was going to die and then come back to life after three days. And, and he kept telling the Pharisees, you know, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Uh, you know, maybe he wasn't actually talking about the temple. Maybe he was talking about... He, none of them were like that. 
Nobody was saying or thinking that. They were all like, how could this have happened? He did miracles. We saw it with our own eyes. Lots of miracles. He even raised the dead. So how could he let something like this happen to him? It just didn't enter any of their minds that maybe, just maybe, God was going to raise him from the dead. No, they, they just couldn't wrap their minds around a Messiah that would allow such evil to be done to him, that would allow evil to go so far unchecked. He was supposed to conquer evil and put an end to it, not be conquered by it. That's just not the way things were supposed to unfold according to their limited Understanding, But then on the third day after his crucifixion, you know the story, two women go to the tomb, they find it empty, and, we're told by, uh, and they, were, they are told by an angel that Jesus is alive again and that they should go and tell the disciples. And upon hearing the news, his disciples are like, I knew it. I, I knew it. Hey, guys, come here. Hey, come here let's write the Bible and let's start a religion. No, they weren't like that at all, were they? They were more like, Jesus is alive again? Uh, no, uh, where'd you get that idea? Well, the two Marys, they, they both went to the tomb. Yeah, and you're going to believe two women? Because in those days, culturally, women didn't have a lot of respect. They didn't get a lot of respect. Uh, the, the testimony of a woman was not admissible in court. Jesus actually came and changed all that. Jesus elevated women as he did here. Jesus chose women to, to be the first ones to see him alive. So, um, but, but, we're, but we're told the disciples, when they were told by the women that Jesus was alive, we're told the disciples doubted. They initially thought someone had stolen his body. They, they were confused. Nobody had a sudden epiphany, you know? Nobody was like, hey, yeah, this is all starting to make sense now. This is all coming together. To the contrary, they were more like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. This, what? His body is gone. And they admitted as much in their subsequent writings. But then they record that Jesus started appearing to them alive again, miraculously, like, like uh, you know, appearing to him to them miraculously suddenly showing up in, in rooms where the doors were all locked, inviting them to examine the nail scars in his hands and feet and, and the wound in his side where a Roman soldier had thrust a spear. So, so what does Peter do at this point? He says, we got to go spread the good news. John, you get to work on a gospel. You too, Matthew, get to work on a gospel. I'm going to start working on a sermon. Let's get cracking. We got a movement to launch and a church to, to, to establish. No, that's not what he does. What does Peter do? He says, I'm going fishing. And Thomas and Nathaniel and a few others say, I'm going with you. Well, I mean, this is literally what's in the, in the Bible. Even after Jesus rises from the dead, they're, they're, they're wandering aimlessly. They are, they are full of questions and doubt and confusion. They're, you know, if you were to step into that moment in time and, and get a read on how this movement is progressing, my guess is you would conclude this movement has, has hit a dead end. Uh, it's not progressing at all. But then Luke records this in Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have... Uh, I'm lost on my... I'm on the projection here. Thank you. Um, that's, not, that's not it either. This should be... Here, let me go back. Give me a second. Time out. This is good. It's worth waiting for. Hang on. Do not leave Jerusalem. Do not leave Jerusalem. After you... After something... Uh, on one occasion, he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, John the Baptist talked about how Jesus would, would baptize people in the Holy Spirit and in fire, but there's no record of anyone else using that particular language, not even Jesus until now. Baptize. That means to immerse into. Jesus says they're going to be immersed into the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus himself. Wow. Wow. They had to have been wondering, what was that going to be like? Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're, foolish, they're still foolishly thinking in terms of a political operation. They still want their tiny little nation to be a global power once again. Jesus is talking about power, as we'll see in a minute, but not that kind of power. He said to them, it is not for you to know the dates and times the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power, power. They're going to receive power. The Greek word is dunamis, which is where we get our English word dynamite. No small amount of power. After, this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Kind of like that. Um, as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. So, um, that's the last part of that verse. So, this gift of the Holy Spirit is very obviously a key. It's very central, extremely necessary to this movement. The Spirit of Jesus himself inside his followers, helping them, teaching them, 
reminding them of the things that Jesus commanded them to do, guiding them into all truth, demonstrating that the world is all wrong when it comes to their ideas of sin and righteousness and judgment. And now, and now the promise of some kind of power. And I'm sure at least some of them are, some of them are thinking, okay, so, so what is that going to look like? What kind of power could he be referring to? They saw Jesus do miracles, so I'm sure that, that they had to be thinking that that's got to be part of it. But I'd wager that they were also thinking, you know, thinking in politically, you know, restoring the kingdom to Israel. If, if our task is to make our nation a global power once again, we're going to need a, a little something extra. Uh, like, you know, some sort of superhero powers, you know, of some kind, like maybe being able to shoot lightning out of our wrists and, or maybe control the weather like Jesus did. Hey, 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 James, maybe we'll finally get to rain down fire on our enemies, you know? That would be cool. Power. They'd, they'd probably been with Jesus long enough to know that that wasn't how things were going to go down. But I personally have to confess that there are times that my own imagination drifts that direction. Especially when I see all the horrific evil and injustice and cruelty and corruption that have been unleashed in the world and seemed to be going unchecked. I, I want to strike people with a blindness. Just saying. I, I want to rain down fire from heaven sometimes. There's something in me that, that kind of goes that direction. And wouldn't you know, fire did come down from heaven, but again, not at all in the way that you would expect. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem. Just wait. They, they didn't really know what they were waiting for or how long. He said, in a few days. So, you know, a day went by, then two days, and then three days went by, and they're all together in one room just praying and waiting. 120 of his closest followers, the original 12 Sans Judas, and probably the 70 that he had sent out on an, earlier on a, on a short-term missions trip and a handful more. They're in a second-story room just praying. Four days go by. Five days. Six days go by. On the seventh day, they're all on high alert because they know that God likes the number seven. It's all through the Old Testament, so day seven comes and goes. Day eight comes and goes, and they, and they got to be thinking, you know, he said a few days. Since when is eight a few, you know? I don't know, but he said, wait, so we're going to wait as long as it takes. And in, you know what? The, the Apostle Paul actually mentions that over 500 people saw the risen Jesus at one time, 500 people, before he ascended into heaven. 500. That makes me wonder if this group of 120 maybe started off with a lot more, you know, like maybe 500 people were in that room initially, but as the days dragged on, the crowd maybe started to thin a little bit. There's no indication of that in Scripture, but knowing human nature, I think it's possible. Day 9 comes and goes. On day 10, the number in the room is 120. What happens? Well, let's read about it. When the day of Pentecost came, now Pentecost was a Jewish festival that occurred exactly 50 days after the Passover festival. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, people who would come from all over the world to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem. There were three festivals where every able-bodied male were supposed to go to Jerusalem. One was Pentecost, the other was, uh, another was, the, uh, one was Passover, and then Pentecost, and I believe the uh, Feast of Booths. Um, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. They've had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And then Peter launches into this powerful sermon. The same Peter who just weeks earlier denied he even knew Jesus. He gives this powerful sermon. The same Peter who was, the same Peter who formerly was that, was now suddenly and miraculously like that. And 3,000 people repent and become followers of Jesus. This, this movement, this movement has left the harbor. This is a relatively relatively poor, uneducated group of men and women of very average stature and competence, they literally go on to turn the entire world upside down, launching a movement that has swept the globe and continues to expand to this very day. Not because of their cunning, not because their exceptional leadership skills or communication ability or their political prowess or charismatic personality, not because of their acute wisdom and intelligence. No, simply because the spirit of Jesus himself got into them, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and it empowered them to walk as Jesus walked and speak as Jesus spoke and do as Jesus did and to love unselfishly as Jesus loved. 
Listen, here's the big idea today. You and I, we cannot walk as Jesus walked and do as Jesus did. We cannot obey his commands. We cannot even accurately remember what they were or why they were given. We struggle even to recognize the truth apart from the spirit of truth, which is his Holy Spirit. Jesus never intended for you and I to live the Christian life in our own power or ability. It's not even possible for us. We are powerless to do so, and yet so many of us try, don't we? What, what's the very first step in the 12 steps? You must recognize that you are what? That you are powerless. Powerless over your addiction. Powerless over your sin. Powerless to change yourself in any meaningful way. You need a power outside of yourself. You need a higher power. Jesus promised to give us that higher power as a gift. A helper who will be with us forever, who would continually remind us of everything that Jesus said and lead us into all truth, who would work within us both to desire what is right and, and the, the power, the ability to do what is right, who, who would produce in us the qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, because it is His very own Spirit dwelling in us. But that whole Pentecost thing, uh, you know, the rushing wind and the flames and the speaking in tongues and all that, that, that was just for back then, right? I mean, that was, that was not for today, just for that time or that place, right? Or, or, or was it? Well, Peter, in that sermon that he gave in Acts chapter 2, he concludes that sermon by saying this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The pr this promise, this, this promised gift is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for for all whom the Lord our God will, will call. That would seem to include you and I, wouldn't it? Now, now we tend to focus on the outward stuff, the, the phenomenon, you know, the, the, the visual manifestations, the wind and the flames and the speaking in tongues. God was dramatically marking and confirming this first ever outpouring of his spirit into the souls of regular old flesh and blood human beings. But the display is not the primary point. Jesus didn't say, wait until Jerusalem until little flames start popping up on your heads and you start speaking in, in a language that, you, that you've never learned. The, that wasn't the point. The point was that they received power. They received power. The, the very first verse we read this morning was Jesus saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then the very next thing he says is, and I will ask the Father and he'll give you a helper. He, he will give you an advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. See, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can keep his commandments. 
and, and live as he lived and do as he did. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can go into the world and make disciples. So, so how does that work? Well, an interesting thing, throughout the whole Bible, the, the wind is a common metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus uses it multiple times, talking about the wind. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, the sound of a mighty wind filled the room where they were gathered. If you've ever been on a sailboat, you know that you are 100% totally dependent on the wind, aren't you? You're dependent on something that you actually have no control over. All the advances in science, we still don't have the ability to control the wind. Cannot control how strong it blows, where it blows, what direction it blows from, or even if it blows at all. But our job is not to control the wind. Our job is to adjust ourselves and align ourselves with the wind and let it carry us forward. Now, if you've ever skippered a sailboat, you know that there are two fundamental things that you do have control over. One, you can decide what direction your boat is pointed, and the other is you can decide whether or not to hoist your sail. Some of us, our boat is pointed in the wrong direction. It's not pointed in the direction of obeying his commands. It's not pointed in the direction of, of, of living in a, in a way that is, is like him. It's pointed in, in a direction of our own choosing, uh, pointed in our own selfish interests or self-fulfillment. Others, uh, others of us, we don't want to be carried forward. We, we like where we are. We don't like change. Our, our sails uh, are never hoisted, consequently, and so we don't go anywhere. Other of, uh, others of us are, are used to doing things under our own power. May, I got to make it happen. Being in control ourselves. We prefer to row, to row in our own strength because we like being in control. We, we don't like to wait for the wind or be dependent upon the wind. We don't want to be at its mercy. We may not like the direction it's blowing, which <laughs> even a novice sailor knows learning how to use a sail and the rudder properly, you are far in far more control than someone trying to row against the wind. And you've maybe seen this happen, which, by the way, is one of the fruits of the Spirit, is self-control. See, God doesn't want to control you. That may be a newsflash. God doesn't want to control you. He wants to give control of your life back to you so that you're not controlled by sin, you're not controlled by your appetites, your lusts, or the things of this world. He doesn't want to control you, but he does want to empower you and empower you to live for him. When we hoist our sail and catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says we are filled with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're filled with the Holy, fruit of the Holy Spirit. A person who hoists their sail is a person who says, says I, I, will, I want to be dependent upon the wind. I will not rely on my own power. How foolish to try to row across the ocean. That would be insanity. I'm putting myself at the mercy of the wind. I'm putting myself at the mercy of the Holy Spirit. How did this least likely to succeed Jesus movement? Not only get out of the harbor, but find his way literally into every corner of the globe. A group of timid 
humble followers of Jesus pointed their boat in the right direction and simply hoisted their sails and waited and waited as Jesus told them. Worship team, you guys can come back up. And waiting's the hard part. We don't like to wait. We, 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 are, we like to get her done. We like to, to move ahead and, and do it in our own power if necessary. Prophet Isaiah said this. He said, those, those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. And some of us are growing faint today, and some of us are growing very weary, and some of us don't even have the strength to go on. I want to encourage you not to try to follow Jesus in your own power and strength. It will wear you out. But when you set aside your agenda and your, your pursuits and your idea of what direction you think your life should go, when you set that aside and you begin to wait, wait on the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. And they waited 10 days. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. When you wait on the Lord, you will renew your strength. You will gain new strength and soar on wings like eagles. Heavenly Father, forgive us for trying to follow you and serve you in the flesh. Try to follow you and serve you on our own power. Try to, try to be like you just from our own willpower. How foolish. Lord, today, right now, this moment, we declare our dependence upon you. We've grown tired. We've grown weary. God, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Instead of fighting against your Holy Spirit, instead of resisting your Holy Spirit, would you help us to welcome the wind of your Holy Spirit in our lives and begin every day by declaring our dependence upon your Holy Spirit to do anything redemptive or good. Lord, would, would, as we wait on you, would you allow our hearts, our lives to begin to produce the fruit that you said would come as a natural result of waiting on your Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thank you, Jesus, for your most precious and most necessary gift of the Holy Spirit. We open our hearts and lives to that today. In Jesus' name, amen.